You're listening to the Green Majority Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, we have a special guest this week. It's going to be uh, Carl Williams from the ACLU uh, with a little bit of a theme of social justice, a little bit of other stuff mixed in there just to, for just for flavor, and we uh, uh, we hope you enjoy it. So uh, just a quick reminder, I won't talk too much. Please take our short survey. That would help out very much on future show formats. Uh, our show format could be changing soon. Your feedback is very valuable. Please take a moment to do that. And hey, while you're on the website, which would be either last week's post or this post, uh, go ahead and uh, sign up as a member as well. You can do that at patreon.com slash green majority, P-A-T-R-U-N dot com slash green majority. Uh, if you do that and vote, you have a one in 10 million chance of me sending you an ice cream cone. That sounds about right. We're listening to the Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. Uh, we have Stefan back. Welcome back, Stefan. I'm back. Yay. Have you slept yet? Uh, yes, I spent a vast percentage of this week sleeping. You sound exceptionally more rested than I feel like I've heard you in a really, really long <laughs> at time. At least a couple months. All right. Uh, so Stefan's back. Sabina is also here. Sabina has any. And we're going to be uh, – I'm actually going to just uh, be very quick here and, and hand it right over to Stefan. Stefan is basically doing the first portion of the news for us today. Sabina's going to jump into the end. Uh, I'm going to just say two quick things quick. Uh, one of them is that we're making uh, – we have a, a very quick poll up on our website. I want to put that out really quickly before I forget to mention it. Uh, it's going to help us decide. It's very short. It, very, very short. It's four questions. It will take you less than one minute. Uh, but it's going to help us make some decisions about the content on the show going forward and the, and the perhaps the format of the show going forward. So please take a moment today. It's on last week's show post. It will be on today's show post. So please take one minute if you can and go and do that. The other is just to let you know that my contribution to the show today is going to be interviewing Carl Williams, who is a ACLU lawyer in uh, out of the Massachusetts office, uh, who works on a variety of uh, issues, but obviously including, uh, up to and including uh, Free Palestine, Black Lives Matter, no DAPL. Uh, and of course, uh, I, I imagine is probably spending a lot of his time uh, dealing with uh, Trump's Muslim bans and, and other sorts of things uh, these days. We'll hear more from him about that, about the intersection of social justice, uh, just race in general uh, in uh, Canada and abroad, and, and how that plays into, uh, in, to some degree, in environment movements. But, but I also really just want really to basically give him the floor and, and uh, find out what his perspective on the relation between these issues is. So we'll be talking to Carl in about 15 minutes or so from now, but uh, the next 15 minutes, you're Stefan's. Thank you. Um, and, and to fair that actually uh, dovetails perfectly into, into, the, into the news that I'm covering this week, um, which was partially by design that I went out to search for stuff, but also because uh, it's the, because the decisions that Trump's making on the EPA uh, have a variety of different impacts. And, but I want to start somewhere pretty simple. I want, I want to sort of go back um, and, and remind people of, of, a, of an old, quote-unquote, old story. Uh, mainly because this is the kind of thing with which more often than not when the way the news cycles work uh, is that something comes to the news, it becomes a scandal or whatever, um, everyone talks about it for a while, and then people stop talking about it. And 
usually people presume it's stopped being talked about because it's solved. You know, we've done something. You know, it's like, oh, the every, co- collective consciousness was gained and, and we are now uh, – we solved the problem and are moving on. Um, whereas more often than not, it's just that the problem still is there. It just stopped being shocking because we knew about it now. Um, and and so we st- we completely lose the, lose sight of of the fact that these are continually ongoing issues. Um, and so this one is pretty simple. Uh, it's that people still can't drink water in Flint, Michigan. Um, and you know this Flint news news broke. I think two years ago in early 2015 basically and you know it was this massive scandal and it went over and and you know and they, there was calls for the res- resignation of of the governor uh, and and a whole bunch of other people were, were sort of were sort of pointed out a different failure systematic failures throughout the sort of whole way and it, it became a sort of galvanizing point for uh for the for environmental justice movements um and for interest in um uh and interest in these kind of issues and then yet you know, two years later, uh, you know, I'm not saying things haven't gotten better, uh, but you, people still cannot drink the water in Flint, Michigan. Uh, so the good news uh, in this story, at the very least, is that uh, Flint is now in compliance with federal regulations on lead and copper content. Uh, so, in you know, so there, so so theoretically, people could drink the water. Um, however, uh, all of the lead tainted pipes have not been replaced. In fact, a fraction of them have been replaced, and st- and so re- so regulators are still saying they'll probably take at least another year, if not more, before it is safe for residents to drink uh, to drink from their faucets. Uh, to give you a sense of how how little has been done so far, there are about twenty thousand lead tainted pipes, and the city's hoping to have six thousand replaced by the end of year. Uh, we know about twenty five percent of these of these tainted pipes, and so. Despite the fact that you know we had this massive uproar, massive, massive conversation about this, nothing is. It's the it's the slow burn and the slow uh, actual process of getting the work done that gets missed. Uh, and so we can get, get these points, these places where like if you meant Flint, Michigan, if you mentioned Flint, Michigan to an average person, they'll know about it. They'll know about the the, the tainting water, or at least they'll know something about inability to drink water. They might even not even know why. Um, but yet here they remain, and. I want to come back to that because I think that's an important point um, uh, uh, that I'll get to in half a second of this idea of these flashpoint issues that they get that they get lost uh, because I think that fact the knowledge that that's how things work uh, play into the hands of of uh, of, of, the, of the of the government um, especially the Trump government in a very specific way which I'll get to in half a second. Well, uh, and I just yeah. want to jump in really quick, Stefan. That I mean, partially, and I don't I don't mean in the sense that, and I and I, and I want to make sure that I make this really clear. I don't mean this in the sense of the stereotype of the, you know, quote unquote, bunch of men in, in a dark room smoking cigars sort of way, but in a sort of systemic sort of way that that that's kind of by design, right? And but now that we have Trump, it's actually it actually is the cigar smoking thing. But it was well, you know, it, the, the thing is always like, well, you know, how long do, can we wait? You know, how long do we have to wait? How long do we have to stall uh, before this goes away or before people lose interest or before the protesters go home and give up or before? And now that we have Trump, it's well, I just say something else outrageous yeah. and everyone will talk about that. Right. So we're seeing sort of a cartoon villain version of it in Trump. But I mean, the, this has been the whole thing. Well, if we just stall for a while, it'll go away. People will forget about it. Well, and it's, it's 100 percent by design, which is actually what I'm getting to in half a second, but a different kind of design as well, um, because the big the big news 
news of, of this week out of the EPA was that Scott Pruitt, the head of the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, basically came out and, uh, and denied that CO2 was a primary contributor to climate change, which at this point is basically, you know, it's, it's along the lines of being an anti-vaxxer or, you know, saying gravity is just a theory. You know, these are like it's, it's just it's, – it's so out to lunch. Uh, and, and it's out to lunch that he's – on the EPA website, it still directly says that CO2 is a private contractor and you have the head of it being like, I don't know. Uh, his exact quote actually, this is from Scott Pruitt, was, I think that measuring with precision human activity on the climate – uh, is something very challenging to do, and there's tremendous disagreement about the degree of impact. So, no, I would not agree that it's a primary contributor to the global warming that we see. We've, we've covered this ad nauseum. Uh, tremendous disagreement needs to be understood as a, a the, the only tremendous disagreement that exists here um, is the ways people should respond to when someone says that. Uh, because there's massive – there's studies of studies of studies now at this point practically showing how well known that CO2 is a cause of climate. You know, there are – let alone from the, you know, the, the leftist government, from the Exxon and Shell, uh, these are – the oil companies know what's happening. And so to have the – and currently that's now – like – this means that Scott Pruitt, the head of the EPA, is actually further along the climate denial scale than the former head of Exxon, who is the Secretary of State. Like, Rex Tillerson accepts that climate change is caused by CO2. And or, or at a minimum, at a minimum, has been forced to, to say that said he it. Does, yes, right? exactly. Um, and, and so that means the person who used to run the oil company, who is an executive, is actually at this point more, more accepting of climate science than the person they put in the head of the EPA. Um, but that's not the story I want to talk about because while that's a story, um, the, the, the other thing that's going on in the EPA right now is actually what I want to get to and, and what leads to this sort of this by design piece, which is that – Whenever something like Flint, Michigan goes wrong, the conservative commentation, the, the conservative response and the public response is always that, see, government doesn't work. The government failing. Government is not, you know, government is not good at their jobs. Therefore, they should be replaced with private industry uh, or any of these sorts of things. And, and, and while completely glossing over the fact that the, the larger narrative there is, is ignoring the ongoing destruction of the government which would be doing these things um and so from this piece these the, the epa uh the current plan for the epa cuts about 25 percent of its budget which is about two billion dollars uh now two billion dollars sounds like a lot um because it is it's a massive massive blow to the environmental protection agency of the united states um it's also going to be moved into the defense spending budget, which is $600 billion. So you're taking 25% of the EPA to become a fraction of a percent of the budget that exists within the, uh, within the military. And, and, and it's not and – it, and it would be bad enough if that was just – if they were just going to you – know, sort of a broad-based sort of reduction of, of EPA things across the board. But the, the, what I want to focus on here is the targeted um, – really racism of the decisions of what's being cut 
Because what's being cut is the Environmental Justice Agency, which the entire goal of the Environmental Justice Agency is to bridge the gap of amount of pollution experienced by black and Hispanic and low-income communities and wealthier white neighborhoods. So basically their entire goal is to ensure that you know poor and marginalized communities aren't being disproportionately affected by po- pollution of different natures. Well, Stefan, at least they have an excellent healthcare system they can go to when they get sick. Yes, for the next, like, what, couple months? Um, but exactly. Like, so, like, here is the... It's actually the 16th now, I think. Oh, great. <laughs> um, and so, and so here, is, here is this thing, which when it happens, um, the Flint water crisis is this massive failure, and everyone talks about it, right? And then, but what no one will talk about is the fact that... Uh, that the system is in place to create exactly this crisis, you know. Uh, and further, the this decision has she has has led to the the the, I guess, resignation uh, of Mustafa Ali, who was both the head of both the head of the environmental justice uh, organization or um, environmental justice agency, as well as the founder of the agency in 1992. So this has been around, this organization has been around for, for 14 years, 15 years, trying to ensure that, that these sort of pollutions don't disproportionately harm these marginalized communities. And the Trump comes in, and what, what do they cut? Uh, they cut what hurts specifically low-income and marginalized voices. And to, to, to put it, to put a, to put a, to, to put a fine form to connect even further this Flint, Flint, Michigan, um, with these cuts, because these cuts will cause another Flint, Michigan. These cuts will cause another five Flint, Michigans. Um, and, and they already probably exist without sort of the, I'm sure that in the United States there already are these sort of scenarios that are going on and playing out right now. Um, but, Recently, uh, shortly before Obama's term ended, the EPA unveiled a, a new effort to tackle lead poisoning, Spe- lead poisoning, air pollution, and other problems suffered by communities of color situated next to sources of toxins. Um, so specifically, this is a new program to prevent exactly what happened in Flint, Michigan. And it was, it's a part of the Environmental Justice Office, which, of course, will be cut when these cuts go through. And so when another Flint, Michigan happens, let's not disc- have the conversation of, uh, of, how, uh, of, how, um, of how this is an immediate crisis. This is not an immediate or momentary crisis. This is a crisis that was created and is ongoing be- by an intentional plan to, uh, to harm these, or these, these, these people. And, 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 and uh, there's not even a... There's not a better way – like it's as if they sort of ch- went out to choose the particular people that they were going to harm uh, and then they were like, well, do those things. Who needs these things? Uh, I, I personally you – know, I'm sure Scott Pruitt's you know, neighborhood is not, is not being impacted by lead poisoning anytime soon. Um, and, and so it's, it's – the way these cuts are being administered are so obviously and so intentionally designed um, to, to harm the people with the weakest voice. So they can fight back the the hardest time fighting back. That it's it's unconscionable. Yeah. No, I was just going to stick in is that like the most possible charitable way to read that, and I say charitable with gigantic sets of scare quotes around them. Uh, the most charitable way to read that is uh, to cynically say that well, these communities are never going to vote for us anyway. 
Uh, I think the more accurate way to do it is, well, it's a bunch of black people. They're, they're, so they're both black and they're never going to vote for us and they're never going to vote for us because they're black. Well, maybe that's because all your policies are super racist. <laughs> Not, well, like, but, you know, so but I mean, sorry, I wanted to I wanted to draw a string there. So there, there was two things you brought up that I wanted to draw a line between. Uh, one of them was you mentioned the uh, the idea of sort of let's get rid of this because it's broken. Um, and and uh, to tie that to a line to the, the racism angle, which is, uh, well, you know, uh, people will say, well, you know, maybe maybe the reason there's more black people in American jails is because they're more likely to be criminals, right? That's, I mean, that's it's a hideous thing, but people say that. I can't believe people say it, but I've I've seen people say it. I've heard people say it. And the same thing. Well, well, okay, but like if we look at the factory thing, it's like, and the same thing happened to the CBC here in Canada under Harper, right? So let's so this this there's this whole trick, and I'm going to say, you know, right wing people do it um, just because I'm simply I'm not aware of any evidence of lefties governments do it. Maybe they do. I don't know, but I know that I know that right wing governments do this in Canada and the us which is that they go out they want there's something they want to remove that helps people that they don't want to pay for and they break it and then they can tell you that it's broken so that you ask them to finish killing it because if they just kill it there's outcry but if they break it first they get the people to you know enough people to say hey this is broken and they say hey and then they point it to the you know they smash a mirror and then they point at the broken pieces and say look how broken this mirror is so let's you know let's clean up the mirror let's take the mirror entirely away so there's nothing there and it's the same thing with the thing well there's more black people in jail well that's because you keep arresting black people that is not because they're criminals those are two completely unrelated things <laughs> right and so it's the same thing of like i'm going to cause a problem and then i'm going to point to the problem and say who who smashed this mirror you know well why are all these people in jail why is this thing broken why isn't this working well maybe it's because i want people to think of it maybe because you broke it and maybe I'm not. Maybe we're talking specifically in the case of Scott Pruitt and the government. Maybe it's indirectly through systemic means. But I mean, we have to look at why is it. The next time someone tells you something is broken, let's get rid of it. You have to ask yourself why is it broken and who broke it and why. Well, and and I think there's a there's just a there's a systematic history of of, of these different type of plans and different types of 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 like, like it's not. It is the Environmental Justice Agency did not come out of. Uh, the thin air. It was created to address a fact, a, 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 a obvious problem, which was that poor and marginalized communities were had dramatically higher rates of pollution than wealthier white neighborhoods. That is the reason they created this thing. It that remains to be true. Therefore, you could one take one option is the work is not done. The other option is well, we're just gonna we don't care. And the only way to understand this is, I think, is to some extent, is, is we don't care, especially when, you, like, the, 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 last piece, the last piece of this that, like, it's, it's, it's so difficult to not, uh, to, to, you know, what's interesting about this is that this, I've only, this only, like, this is, exists on a United States scale, but it also exists on a world scale. Uh, and I'll post it for half a second, then we can go to, we go for some music break, because I'm a little over time. Um, but, you know, it's one thing to, it's one thing to just, just, just center around the fact that, look, all these poor modular communities are seeing massive amounts of pollution, and that's part of the problem. But then when you blow this up to the, the second, the other place that a lot of, they're seeing huge cuts, is that 70% of, of, of climate initiative, uh, initiatives will also be cut in this plan. And that is the world scale version of the exact same thing. Because who are the people who be massively impacted by by seventy percent of climate cuts? Oh, it's poor Pacific Island nations, uh, and it's people who are in, in countries who can't afford mitigation strategies. And so this is there's there's not really another way for me to even see this the, the EPA cuts as anything but uh, an attack on 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 America and the world's poor uh, and marginalized. And it's 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 one thing to to you know it's 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 
and I think that alone speaks to the importance of the environmental justice movement and the need to have a justice first and and overall larger lens when you look at uh, when you look at envi- uh, the environment. Uh, and if to bring it back to Canada for one half second, it's also why environmentalists, uh, rightly so, are quite look at the Trudeau government with a level of sort of. Uh, uh, you know, not, I won't say disdain, but disdain is not exactly right, right, not exactly the right word. Uh, but look at this sort of what the Trudeau government is doing, and you know them being praised by him being get a, receiving an award yesterday from the oil industry, um, and be like, I understand that you might and think you can do these sorts of things, um, but I don't fully understand where you are. Uh, where like, this is why we don't fully trust you. It's because if you aren't fully grasping the fact that there has to be a justice-based angle to this and you're failing on that front and that's why that's why the environmental movement is not on Justin Trudeau's side and I think until he recognizes that, uh, he's going to keep having these battles where he thinks he's doing good work. All right. So I think we've sufficiently warmed up the uh, microphones for Carl Williams. Thank you very much, uh, Stefan, for the first segment. We're going to go directly to our music break because I'm eager to talk to Carl. Uh, so you're listening to uh, Green Majority here, CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners uh, internationally now, as well as our uh, growing podcast audience as well. Uh, thank you to everybody. We'll be right back. If I go veil. Back, you're listening to, uh, there we are. We're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners and the podcast as well. Uh, I believe we have Carl Williams with us now. Are you there, Carl? Yeah, I am. Wonderful. Thank you uh, for taking your time uh, to speak to us uh, today. Uh, we've already spent the first portion of our show here talking a little bit about some of the, uh, a lot of American news, basically. Uh, it's hard not to these days. Um, we've talked a little bit about the EPA cuts and the disproportionate effect that that's going to have on uh, people of color, generally speaking. Um, and uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a couple of issues having to do with uh, no DAPL, of course, um, drawing on your uh, work at the ACLU. Um, but I also just understand that there's a lot going on that I'm not aware of as well. So I just wanted to start by, by asking you uh, what's on your, what was on your mind when you woke up this morning? What is the most pressing thing that you're thinking about right now? Oh, a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, I, if, me personally, if you ask that question, it's the war on drugs and uh, things that are happening here in Massachusetts and across the country. Um, have historically been happening, which you know has led to the incarceration of millions of folks, and um, uh, fighting that. Just because I have some actually some uh, paper in front of me today that's that's dealing with that. But of course, sort of in a grander scheme of things, I think um, the direction that the United States has been going in, or sort of has been consistent in over the years, and that is you know with you know the previous administration, the Obama administration, supporting 2.5 to somewhere between 2.5 and 3 million people, that if we do that mathematically, and I'm bad at that because I'm a lawyer, but uh, <laughs> that's, we're talking about close to 1,000 people a day under the Obama administration. And that's not an administration that was saying, yes, we want to deport everyone. And now we have an administration that's saying, you know, we want to, um, you know, deport, you know, quote-unquote illegal people in this country, and they're expanding the scope and expanding the, the, the power and ability to do that. Um, that's terrifying. The executive orders that have been signed, um, been challenged by the ACLU in, in, in many states and across the country here, um, to some powerful effect. But now we have the second, um, uh, uh, as the administration calls it, a travel ban, as anyone who can read calls it, a Muslim ban. Um, it's incredibly worrisome, and it's hurting uh, people in our communities. It's hurting um, 
our, uh, our ability to protect uh, uh, folks across this country. And Carl, one of the things, um, as I say, we, we mainly focus on Canadian news here and, and usually mostly on, on the environment. So I'm, I'm well outside of my area of expertise here. But I mean, we were I, I'm aware just from my own research as well and from sometimes from covering on the show um, you know, there's been, as you say, there there's a, a lot of things that were, I think, very questionable about the Obama administration, you know, record numbers of, of uh, drone strikes and, and the record number of deportations and all these sorts of things. So now coming coming in from that and sort of being aware that, that you know, maybe Obama wasn't as great on some things, but then going from that and, and from that sort of conversation on the left about, you know, can we do better than, than on, in some of these areas than what uh, Obama is offering to move to someone who's, I mean, literally outright just declared war on minorities is, is, how, I, is how I'm sort of feeling about it. Um, I can't even imagine uh, what it would be like to be trying to be working at the ACLU right now. Can you tell me what the atmosphere is in your, in your office and sort of what how are people sort of mobilizing to have has the shock even worn off? Um. Well, so we always work. <laughs> so um, I would say that. But um, but recently, of course, I mean, we're not usually in federal court from midnight on a Saturday night to three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night. That is not a usual thing that happens, and that did happen. Um, that the weekend of the initial, you know, Muslim ban, travel ban, um, and we were there trying to get a temporary restraining order, asking federal judges to enjoin the president from enforcing this this um, this ban, and and we're successful in that. Um, later, we were. Uh, that that was that ruling uh, just not particularly overturned, but that ruling was was not continued. Um, some some sort of allies and folks working in Washington State uh, carried sort of the ball forward, and and that put an end to the the, the sort of the threat of of the initial uh, ban on folks coming from these Muslim countries. Um, but now they've redrafted. But um, you know, there's a lot of our continued work. You know, a lot of our litigation. You know, our cases that date back three, four, five years. But we work on many different fronts, right? We, we do uh, legislative work. We try to change laws on uh, local in, in, uh, ordinances in cities and towns, um, laws at a state level, laws at a federal level. We also do that through litigation. We also do that through public education and advocacy and um, recruiting volunteers and activists and organizers. Um, that work, so the work on, you know, trying to get, you know, the federal government to pass you know, law that says we should protect people, we should insure people, we should uh, expand our civil rights, we should, you know, protect voting rights. That's very difficult work right now. So if we, you know, if we call up one of our senators and say, hey, you should introduce a bill that says this, or you should support a bill that says that, that's very, very difficult work right now. Because, you know, even so folks who are going to be on our side are going to say, yeah, how on earth am I going to get through that, through the Senate? How am I going to get it through um, the House of Representatives? How are we going to get the president to not veto it, Right. So that work is very, very difficult, right? Um, so we're trying to at least hold ground and not, you know, stop advance of, of, of bad bills. That's our legislative work. Our work, you know, trying to lobby the administration to do good things, and also incredibly difficult. However, in our advocacy work, educating the public, mobilizing people to, to get out, that work has rarely ever been so powerful, ever. So I think when we think of, like, all these bad things are happening... A thing happened that probably all your listeners and you are aware of, because it happened here, it happened in Antarctica, it happened in Cape Town, South Africa, it happened in you know in in, in Hong Kong and every everywhere else, nearly every country in the world, people stood up um, uh, on the, the day of the Women's March in January. That event, arguably, was the an event that aside from TV events or something like that or sporting events, the event 
that m- more people did collectively for a single reason, and certainly for a political reason, than any other event in all of human history. I'm going to say that again, because I think it's incredibly important. That event was the one thing in all of human history that was collectively done with the most people ever, mm. right? And that, I think, is incredibly important, right? Because that's never happened before. And they can have all of the bombs and all of the bullets and all of the money. All, all those things can do is convince people to be afraid and to do what they want from, from fear and force, right? Free, fear, force, and bribery, I'll say. Mm. Um, if we have people on our side, right, that are going to stand up for justice, that are going to stand up for truth, that are going to stand up for democracy, they cannot win. It isn't possible. You see all in the United States, I don't know how much you followed it, but all of these leaks. Mm. And people, they, the, the State Department, uh, or, or the, the, the uh, Sean Spicer, the, the press secretary for the president, called in his, his people and, and yelled at them about, like, there are too many leaks, and you're leaking things, and we're going to check people's phones. And, and someone leaked the meeting that was an anti-leak meeting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, that's like, what, what I, I, that level. And I don't know if you're all, actually I did, I saw you're, you're, I just followed you on Twitter. Um, mm. But on Twitter, I, there are all these alt, so like there's the EPA, and the EPA is going to get torn apart, as you know. And there's this alt EPA account. Mm-hmm. And there are people in the EPA who are like, hey, I'm going to tell you what's happening here today. Um, people are clearing out. This is what's happening. We just went into a meeting and this happened. And there are these secret accounts that are telling. There's alt White House. There's alt President of the United States. And people saying, this is what's happening here today. Everyone's running around and they're screaming about this thing. And people are furious and everyone's mad at you know this particular person in the administration because they think they screwed up. And people think this person needs to get fired or that person needs to you know make a statement or they need to deny this. And that's happening more and more, right? Because, just as the example with the Moon's March, people are on the side of justice. People are on the side of freedom. People are on the side of democracy. People are on the side of women's rights, um, the rights of people of color, the rights of immigrants, the rights of Muslims, um, the rights of LGBTQ people. There are too many of us and not enough of them, mm-hmm. right? Um, and they can't... Um, and, and people have seen this, I think, a lot of people in the United States because... Historically, in ways, we've been a country that has welcomed um, refugees and immigrants and have, you know, a very, very large percentage of our um, populace that are those people that say, hey, you know, I saw this in Sierra Leone. A co-worker of mine said, you know, look, this is what it was like when we left Argentina. And my, you know, my blood got cold when she said that. She said, this is the kind of talk. And we left early because we knew. We knew what it meant. And that is terrifying. But those people... Listen to those people. <laughs> Listen to those people. Because I think rarely in human history have we overestimated the threat of extreme right-wing, fascist, neo-fascist, you know, ultra-conservative. Well, I, I hear they're all lone wolves anyway, right? So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, they're not. They're but, not right wing. They're not right wing conservatives. They're not. They're not. Uh, you know, extremist Christians. They're. They're lone wolves. They. You know. Yeah. But the problem is now all the lone wolves are in the government. Yeah. 
There's an entire pack of lone wolves. Never mind the contradiction. Um, so, Carl, one of the things I know you're 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 interested in is is the Dakota Access uh, uh, pipeline, um, and I'm I'm glad you, you provided me a, a great segue because I w- I wanted to mention that one of the other uh, things I was reading last night um, was about I, I don't recall the the state, but somebody was trying to uh, essentially f- you know find a way to they were essentially trying to criminalize protests. They were saying if if anything happens anywhere near the protest, anyone who's there can be charged with it. So if say you know you have 500 peaceful protesters and one person breaks a window. They they can all be charged with, or or they can discriminately charge anyone they want with, you know, a sort of right. aiding and abetting so a violent protest. There's a whole bunch of, so the, the reason why you couldn't find a state, and I'm making little quote marks with my fingers, mm. you can't find a state, because last time I checked, I think it was 13 or 17 states <laughs> oh, wow. are passing d- different type, not specifically, as you said, sort of this collective action thing, but um, are trying to pass laws that say, saying disruptive protest or protest that may block traffic or protest that may, which those are very easy things to say. It's like, you know, if you have five people standing on a sidewalk, I actually do this all the time when I'm in New York or in Boston, I'm walking down the street and there are five, you know, business guys walking together. And I'm like, you're blocking the whole sidewalk, walk in single file. And it's like, if that was a protest, they could say, hey, well, you're impeding traffic. We're, we're going to charge you with a felony. Charge someone with a felony in most states, they no longer have a right, to, or if they're convicted of it, no longer have a right to vote. You know, maybe they're going to attach mandatory minimum sentencing, like you have to go to jail for a year or have to mm-hmm. go to jail for two years, which is, you know, a lot of our, you know, the, a lot of the war, the so-called war on drugs have sentencing like that. It terrifies people. Most people, you know, I used to be a public defender. Most people, when faced with that kind of a threat, will say, look, I'll plead to anything as long as I don't get that crazy, you know, five, minimum five year or minimum two years in jail. Um, those are things that people are dramatically fighting back by protesting. Um, but I think those are things that uh, the more these sort of draconian methods get put in place, the more allies we're getting. And, and you know, we, I, I tell a very brief story about um, uh, that, that weekend of, the, of the, the, uh, the Muslim ban. The president signed the, the order about um, allowing uh, uh, more movement to be made in building the Dakota Access Pipeline Project. And so a bunch of Native folks and their supporters in New York City went out and demonstrated. It was about four or 5,000 people. So pretty big demonstration marching through New York City um, and gathered in Washington Square Park. And folks from outside the country might know Washington Square Park is a very famous arch there. It's in every movie when they try to say that something is in New York. They show the Statue of Liberty. They show the, the, the Empire State Building. And they show the arch at Washington Square Park, which looks like a sort of, you know, a smaller version of the Arctic Triumph. Um, so... 5,000 people are marching like through the arch, they're, you know, chanting no dapple, you know, saying, saying, you know, we're going to fight for, for native sovereignty, fight for the environment, fight for um, land rights for folks. And then there was a march of Muslim people and their supporters, it's about 10 or 15,000 people, and they were in Washington Square Park, and they had been marching through the city because they were like, this is terrible, they're banning Muslims from coming to this country, this is, this is not the America that I thought I was growing up in, and the two marches merged. Mm. So anyone who's an organizer is listening is like, oh my god, that's like an organizer's like that's like organizer <laughs> form, right? It's like it doesn't get better than that. That's like a dream that you have, and all of the people started chanting, the, mer- the, the chants started merging and talking about like freedom and justice and democracy. It's like you can't, and I was like, we can't ask for better ways to encourage people to organize, right? We had a hundred thousand, hundred twenty thousand, hundred fifty thousand people here in Boston, and they could have fit in in. Boston Common and the Public Garden and the streets around there. They had a march. They marched around this, like, giant city block, and there wasn't enough room on the block because the end of the march met the beginning of the march, right? Mm-hmm. And 
And then uh, Sean Spicer, the White House spokesperson, says, we're going to enforce marijuana law even in states that, he didn't say this directly, but he was saying even in states that have legalized it, it's still federally against the law, and we think that's a problem. I'm like, now you're going after people who smoke marijuana in states where the whole state has voted to legalize it? And I said, I didn't think there was anything else you could do to make it so we could have more people on our side. But now, even the people who are not particularly political, but they're like, hey, look, I smoke weed in my house. It's legal. I like that it's legal. And Colorado, in Washington State, in Massachusetts now, those people are now going to be like, hey, I wasn't on your side before, but now I'm on your side. Well, Republicans seem to love states' rights, and except when they don't, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, states' rights, and there was this thing called the Southern Strategy that the Republicans did, and you can go back and look at this. This is some of Nixon, Nixon's advisors. When the Southern states used to be Dixiecrats, right? So this is just a little like U.S. history. Um, they were Dixiecrats. They were, these were these old-school, racist, very racist um, Democrats in the South um, during the you know the, the earlier parts of the Civil Rights Movement, in the, in the, in the middle of the Civil Rights Movement. And the the um a lot of the the anti segregation the the pro segregationists said hey look the, the democrats you know lbj is signing this like this bill for civil rights like what the hell is that and that it started to be the new democratic party and there was a split and the republicans said hey look we can get those states we can take over and they created this thing called the southern strategy and um a, a republican um uh, strategist said, we need to come up with a strategy to get these people to vote for us, because they will, right? Um, basically, Southern, very, very conservative, slash racist people. And and he said, you know, we can't get out, and I'm, I'm quoting directly, also, so people know, I'm a black person, so he, they said, we can't go out and say N, 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 right? The derogatory term for black folks. We can't go out and say that anymore, because, you know, it's too, it's too crass. What we need to do is talk about states' rights. What we need to talk about is welfare. What we need to talk about is immigrants. And then people will know what we're talking and, and we need to talk about law and order. And people will know what that means, but we, can't, we just can't say it. Right? And that, that's written down. That was the Southern strategy of the Republicans like the, from 1964 on. And it kind of worked for them. Right? And I think that's the thing that we need to explicitly say and say, look, we have a, a political system that for the last 40 or 50 years has been heavily, heavily influenced by a system of white supremacy, right? And that's why you see, you know, the president right now going after, you know, Native Americans. That's why you see the president going after immigrants of color. They're not, they don't worry about any Canadian immigrants. Like, if you're a Canadian white immigrant, come on down. Everything's going to be fine. No one's banning you. It's not going to happen. They're not building a wall up there. And I think there are a few Canadian immigrants here. Um, and just that's great. And we like that. And, and I, I went to law school in Wisconsin. I'll just say this. In Wisconsin, the majority, I always ask America, uh, people in the U.S. this, and they always get it wrong. I say, what do you think the majority of undocumented people in Wisconsin were? And people go, oh, Mexican? And I'm like, have you seen a map? <laughs> and, they, and then they'll say, oh, Canadian. I said, yeah, for uh, up until about 2005, somewhere between 2005 and 2010, the majority of undocumented people in, in Wisconsin were, were Canadian. No one said a word. No one ever said, oh, my God, we need to do something about the undocumented people. <laughs> when it turned into being Mexicans, oh, then, then you heard almighty hell. And I think that goes to show this thing about, you know, this, this southern strategy, this idea of white supremacy in the United States, that, you know, they pushed on these people and said, look, we don't want you. If you're brown and you're in our country, we want you out. <laughs> 
Carl, it's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to hear from you. I had about four other questions I wanted to ask you and two comments uh, on top of it. But uh, no, 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 please. By all means, if anything, it just means we'll have you back. I want to thank you very much for your time again. Uh, that's uh, Carl Williams, uh, who's the ACLU, uh, who's an ACLU lawyer in Massachusetts, uh, and we want to thank you very much for your time today, Carl. Thanks so much, guys. All right. Uh, so we're going to go to a music break now, our second. We need a little uh, uh, to take a little breath on that. I know I do. Like I had five other things I wanted to, to say on based on what he was saying, just because, I mean, it, 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 there's there's just so much here. And it is sort of so interconnected with, with all these things that are going on now. So let's all take a breath. Let's listen to some music. Kai is going to tell us what we're going to listen to, uh, who's also smiling because I said her name right for the first time ever. <laughs> uh, and then we'll come back and, and Sabina is going to talk about some other news. So take it away, Kai. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM, internationally on a wonderful uh, syndicates and also extraterrestrially, universally on our podcast uh, network. You can join that at uh, greenmajority.ca. Also where you can take our very, very quick poll, I might add, which will help us uh, decide some future content and uh, perhaps uh, make some adjustments to format as well. So uh, it's one minute. Please take a minute to do that. You can find that on today's show post along with uh, links to uh, – I'm going to link to a couple of uh, talks that Carl, our previous guest, did as well. Um, I think you'll find them very interesting. Uh, I watched one of them twice. Uh, that being said um, – we're trying to do a new thing where we don't overload everybody. And I feel like the first two thirds of the show is pretty intense. So I've specifically uh, uh, requested that Sabina, <coughs> excuse me, uh, talk about something else. So Sabina, <laughs> the floor is yours. Um, thank you. Uh, so today I'm going to talk about, so the, today's show is thanks to Carson. Uh, he sadly can't be here um, with us today. So who's a, who's a new volunteer? Who is a nobody new knows who Carson here. is. <laughs> I think Carson is famous. It's Carson. Oh, Carson! <laughs> right. I love Carson. Sorry, carry on. So do I. <laughs> uh, so thank you to our new volunteer Carson for providing me with these show notes and uh, kind of the theme for for today's show uh, or this segment of the show. Uh, which is electric future of vehicles. So the theme is kind of emergence of the wider range of consumer options for electric vehicles, the roles that governments um, can play in that in subsidizing them or kind of encouraging adoption, as well as growth in new markets such as charging networks and renewable energy and using, using all of these kind of pathways in order to get us to adopt more renewable energy, electric vehicles, and lowering carbon dioxide emissions, which according to the head of the EPA is now no longer. Um, <laughs> it, it just no longer matters, but the rest of the world is continue acting as if it does. So we're just carrying on. Problem solved, Stephen. We can all go home. <laughs> Thankfully. So the first, the first article, which is quite kind of funny and comical, is so recently there was the Geneva Motor Show where a bunch of um, automotive vehicles, automotive vehicles um, uh, companies started to kind of announced their new concepts, especially in, in electric vehicles. So Toyota announces a three-seater electric concept. The seating position is rather laid back with the rear passenger's legs extending alongside the driver. So this is really funny because it's actually a very, very small vehicle. It's about three people. It, it's only three people. And the article says, and to, oh, and Toyota says that the ITRIL could be driven autonomously, but expects that you'll prefer to drive. <laughs> so this is um, this is kind of interesting that new smaller vehicles are kind of on 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 prepared to be on the on the road. But interestingly, as well, Volkswagen is. Uh, 
who has had the scandal recently, is planning to unveil self-driving cars as as part of its post-Dieselgate shift. So Volkswagen will now show off a fully self-driving car at the Geneva Auto Show as part of the German car maker's drive to be at the forefront of new technologies in the wake of its diesel, diesel emissions scandal. So the self-driving concept car is called the Cedric, and so-called level 5 vehicle capable of fully automational uh, operation, and it's a precursor for models such as the Volkswagen Group for the years to come. What's really interesting to see is that all of these companies that had previous scandals are now trying to go in the electric vehicle and the hybrid vehicle, and they're trying to show that you know we're we're doing better and we're trying to be a little bit more tailored to the to our to our customers which is kind of interesting, but... I think there's also a degree of look over here, um, which is like look over here at something that's are good. I mean, I don't know anything about cars. I'll be the first one to tell you. I don't know a damn thing about cars. Hmm. Other than most people buy black cars because they're higher resale value. Now I see it. I sound like how much of an expert I sound. That's literally the only thing I know, and I'm not even sure it's right. <laughs> um, I, somebody told me that once. But it, but it... it but the, the, there's definitely a degree of, of look over here. But it, it, it does also mean that, like, I, I think that that blew up in their faces. And I think as much as, as everyone who listens to the show knows how incredibly cynical I am, I think maybe they got the message to not try and do that. I mean, how many – Uber also. Uh, I didn't read the details. I don't know if you saw that. But they, they were also using software to, to trick regular recently. Uh, I, don't, I don't particularly know the details. But – I mean, there's also the thing of just like how insanely rampant is it that people are just like like large companies like you would think that wouldn't happen because like well too many people would know about blatantly breaking the law but either apparently you can do it without too many people knowing about it or apparently just nobody says anything because we've had so much of this and and I and I sort of wonder because it seemed like as you're seeing I mean it sort of seems like you know on the one hand some of these companies kind of went like okay slap you know not necessarily slap on the wrist some of them are out quite a bit of money and are and are really hurting from it uh but they're sort of like okay you've got our attention but at the same point you know that's also overshadowed with the fact that now you know the barn doors have been swung over on uh, open on corruption in the US and it's kind of like well never has there been a better time to be a corrupt company <laughs> uh so i don't know i mean i I'm sort of like I want to be optimistic, but there, but in the frame larger realm of things, uh, I don't know. I don't know what'll happen. So I mean, it's it's really really interesting, and all of this new technology that's coming out, it all depends on what the customers want. Companies will always, well, they'll definitely with marketing and advertising try to persuade you to buy something that'll make you feel cool or not or whatever. But at the end of the day, if consumers are requesting electric vehicles and they want to be more more conscious of what they're driving or what they're doing and and what kind of impact that they have on this planet, then then companies will abide by that, or at least to some extent, they'll have some range for the, that specific market segment. But what's really interesting to me is that um, ride-sharing services like Uber that you were talking about you would think that that is more environmentally friendly because you think, oh, less cars are going to be out on the road. People are sharing resources. However, it's interesting because Uber at a smaller or a shorter, shorter term actually has more greenhouse gas emissions because of Uber because there's more cars on the road. People are trying to get pe- – instead of taking the bus, for example, you're taking now a somewhat cab. So – a car that would not previously be used and would be in somebody's driveway is now out on the road trying to get new people to 
Oh, and I guess, and some people have gone and because you can use your own car and you don't have to get a, like the the cab. You, I think you know, there's probably some segment of people that have gone and purchased probably not new cars, but probably gotten a car or gotten another car because they're going to then use that as their work vehicle. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not shocked <laughs> that 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 hasn't. So once again, I think this is a, a reminder, folks. Um, First of all, Uber's not great. <laughs> in in uh, many, 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 many ways. For a wide variety of reasons. That being said, uh, let us not be distracted by the fact that, yeah, it's great that GM and, and whoever else is, is putting out some new vehicles. Uh, I have long admitted to be a completely open technophile uh, in the sense that I just I love technology and I love talking about technological solutions to things. And I'm generally more optimistic about, well, I don't see it as some magic panacea. Hey, don't worry. We don't need to do anything because technology will fix it. Of course, that's nonsense. But I am fairly optimistic about our ability to solve problems through technology. That being said, let's just put some money in the subway. <laughs> let's have a functional public transit system. Seems like a much simpler solution. Or develop infrastructure where people don't have to, you know, go from the suburbs 40 minutes to their job. <laughs> that just public public policy should definitely be more, for example, inclusive, number one. And second of all, we should we should try to make our infrastructure in a way that completely reduces greenhouse gas, greenhouse gas emissions, whether that be through transportation, through buildings, through everything. And that, that can only be possible if we're thinking holistically about this. Just adding a couple more charging stations to Ontario, will that really fix the issue? I mean, it's great that we're moving towards this shift from, you know, uh, diesel powered to electric vehicles, but... It's yeah, and I think still so much, so such a long way to go, especially in the way that North America in general, with suburbs and you know small, big malls and just consumerism, it's <laughs> it's definitely not sustainable. I really just like the idea of the show could just be us yelling consumerism into the microphone for an hour every single week. <laughs> That's, that's just have a, we'll just have a word of the day. Yeah, it's, it's just, I, I just, I, I spent an entire, just, just yelling the word consumerism. And, uh, you know, at some point, I think it would get across the point, right? Right? Uh, and there's the, you can see the listener there be like, all right, I've been in this for 58 minutes. Eventually, they're going to say something else. Yeah, and then, and then it'll just end. And that would be the end of the show. Yeah. Probably the end of the show. Period. To be honest, I don't Probably. think. I don't think. <laughs> Ken gives us a lot of re uh, rope. Ken being the station manager here at CIUT. I yeah. don't think we have quite that much rope. No. Yeah. I think. Yeah. But maybe twenty minutes into the word consumerism, <laughs> we might might find Ken. All right. So at the risk of of literally doing that by accident. Yes. Seth, exactly. Uh, we've got about four minutes left. I um. I was I was sort of and as we, as we said we talked uh, uh, about a bunch of uh, American news this morning. Um, uh, obviously, you talked to Carl Williams from the ACLU and, and a little bit of, uh, intentionally off topic about uh, sort of electric vehicles and, and companies um, in the modern space. But um, there's also a lot of things coming up. We just have like three or four minutes. So I, I wanted to do sort of like a, a you were doing sort of a weekly segment thing. You didn't announce it as such today. But mm. uh, there's another weekly segment thing where I'd like to get through, not get through a show. And we're down to about four minutes here in the main show. There will be a bonus show today and, and I'll decide in the next five minutes what that's going to be. <laughs> Um, but we've got four minutes left, um, so I, I don't think we should be allowed to get through an, an hour program. This is my new internal rule. Uh, without some form of either uh, constructive, here's something you can do, uh, a really good joke, um, 
or uh, something that we can genuinely feel good about. So I will give you an opportunity um, to come up with one of those three right now on the spot. Go. Uh, so something – thanks. Thanks. Um, <laughs> no, so, so I think something you can do is, is really simple, honestly, uh, I, and I think comes directly from the – uh, from the message that uh, that we hear from me from the ACLU, ACLU. Uh, it's this kind of work uh, is is not is more often than not the the constant. It's it's more often than not the one moment of the flash in the pan. Uh, this is a crisis. Get on it, and as much much more the long slow hard work, uh, and the long slow hard work shockingly takes some money. Um, it, and it's, you know, it's one thing, you know, it's, it's, it's the ACLU made more money in those like three days, uh, during around the Muslim ban than it had, than it, than it would on average in about, I think it was something like six years. Uh, and, and we can't forget that, uh, we can't forget that the, that the money it takes to sort of. To these organi- the organizations that are consistently doing this sort of consistently fighting the small battle. So, so you and I, you know, in some ways don't have to, um, they need our support. Every one of them uh, is it could do more with more money, and you know uh, the, those of us who live with the means to be able to to, to support uh, these organizations uh, have to understand that I think that's a fundamental part of living it, of of being a good citizen in our society is to fund these organizations um, because you know. If you're, you, you can do all of the redu- re, you, you can you can be the greatest recycler in the world. Uh, you can you can reduce your energy. You can do all these sorts of things. Um, but if you're not also providing resources to, to to build the world we actually need to live in, uh, I think you're only doing half uh, half the battle uh, or half the work. Uh, and so I know it seems like a cop out to just say give the you know give organizations like the ACLU um, or other watchdog groups uh, or other groups working fighting hard to actually change our systems money, uh, but you know when you meet the people uh, who are doing that kind of work uh, and you, when you see the work that, and the kind of upkeep it requires, you realize how important literally just funding it is. All right. Last word went to Stefan. Thank you very much for listening. We do have a bonus show coming up, but that's it for the main show. If you're not sick of us just yet, go download the podcast where you can hear the rest of our conversation. Other than that, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, Stefan Hostetter, for joining me, Sabina Hasseni, and our gaggle of techs in the other room as well. Uh, thank you so much for everybody, and thanks to you for listening. Take care. That's it for the regular part of the program. We keep the discussion going a little bit about some oil news because we were actually surprisingly low on oil talk this week. So we uh, we talk a little bit about Shell. We talk a little bit about uh, investment, divestment from the oil sands uh, and what's going on at uh, the oil companies with Trump uh, in the office. Some peculiar things. We discuss that and more in this week's bonus show. Please enjoy. Also, a quick reminder, if you can become a member of the Green Majority, you can do it for as little as a dollar a month. We would very much appreciate it if you'd consider becoming a 5 or $10 member. Uh, but every little bit helps, and we are currently trying to expand our offerings. Uh, so that's a really good time uh, to do that. You can help us do that as well. Do that at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Green Majority. Other than that, please enjoy the bonus show. We're now in the bonus show. Thank you. Uh, thank you for Stefan for sticking around today and Spina, of course, as well. Uh, it'll be a little bit tight today, but I have sort of uh, – uh, there. I'll just be honest with you. There was a lot more I wanted to talk about with, uh, with the lawyer um, and I just – I sort of feel and, and Stefan and Sabina agreed with me that it's sort of 
weird to do that. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we will be able to continue this conversation through uh, other guests. I, I just it, I feel weird and I think correctly weird and, and slightly inappropriate for three white people to sit around and continue to talk about uh, Black Lives Matter. And not, and not that our opinions are not at, at all relevant, but I just I just don't think that's constructive or useful for anyone, despite it's my interest in probably it, yeah, so. it's probably useful for us to, uh, to to leave that to the people who know better. Right. And yeah. So anyway, I just I, it's feeling very important to me, and, and it was actually not at all planned, but convenient. And I will just mention that um, uh, Desmond Cole, who Stefan and I are both just sort of tangentially, not personally, know through CSI. He's a former CSI member, which is where we both work, and so a lot of people we work with know Desmond. Uh, although neither of us do, I believe neither of us do personally. I know I don't. I met him once. You met him once. I also met him once. Yeah. Uh, but he's uh, he's been a journalist for Toronto Star for quite some time, covering these issues. And last night, if you're listening, uh, well, you wouldn't be unless you downloaded the podcast today. You're not listening live, but uh, Thursday the ninth. Uh, on the CBC, which it's still posted on the CBC website, uh, put out a, I guess it would call it a documentary is the most appropriate word for it, um, uh, called The Skin I'm In. And I will simply leave it that I encourage you to go and watch that. It is available for free uh, as long as you're in Canada on the CBC website. Uh, I may even include a link on today's show, but I encourage you to check that out. And we will just leave that there until uh, until next time. So instead of that, um, Stefan, uh, there were some other news that I'd flagged and you found some stuff I didn't uh, as well talking about Shell. So let's talk about Shell. Yeah, so there's a this is this is interesting in, in that it's like it's two different stories from Shell and both of them are what's funny is there's also a story that I didn't that I didn't cover about about how Shell uh, I referenced that actually on the show but I didn't mention directly about how Shell also knew that climate change was happening in 1991 I believe they had a video they made about it that they that for the, for their employees basically explaining yes we're killing the world um, and then and then you know proceeded to to you know, have everyone say, no, but oil's fine for the next 20 years. Um, but uh, this is actually two different stories. This is one about the ongoing sort of like hesitancy, I guess I will say, uh, of large oil companies from uh, from taking taking on these the, the oil sands assets. Uh, so we, I, I, was speaking, I was speaking a couple of weeks ago about Exxon admitting that part of some of their assets might actually be stranded. Uh, and this is a story of uh, Royal Dutch Shell signing a deal to sell oil sands assets. And so this is um, – it's, it's, it's selling another – something like it's $12.74 billion dollars. Um, and it's again, it's it's a sale, so can't, someone else is still owning this. It's still expected to be uh, expected to be, you know, used. But the the fact that uh, that these kind of um, that these large Exxon and Shell are are solely seeing themselves, you know, buying them, moving themselves out of the oil sands should be a an, a note. Should be important for people to realize that that is. Um, uh, that, 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 that's happening. You know, whether or not, whether or not this, you know, the, the next company that also bought them doesn't still, you know, use all the sort of stuff like that. It should be always just aware that, you know, these are the small little warning signs that maybe, maybe something bigger is actually sort of happening here. And maybe, and maybe they really, maybe these oil companies are starting to, to see the writing on the walls a little bit. Uh, especially given that this comes at the same time that uh, that the the Shell CEO is actually saying a lot of words about having to switch to uh, switch to renewables. Now, again, this is 
This is a company that spends about $25 billion a year uh, and are planning on increasing their investment in renewables to $1 billion by the end of the decade. So it's still you know, max 4% of their portfolio yeah, by the end of the decade. Uh, but at the same time, it's these, it's these trickles. It's these trickles of little things that every once in a while you're like, okay – Maybe because you know it's. It, I always come back to that sentence. Uh, you know that it's. It started. It started small. What? What was the exact sentence? Um, something along the lines of it. It's. It started slowly and then all at once. Uh, and I think you know these are the these are the sum of things where like when it happens, uh, when at some point the price of oil does. Uh, the, 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 when we will accept that certain assets do exist, which will happen. It will happen or we all die. So there's two options. Um, but it, it will happen. Um, these are the sort of things that people that, – that some analysts are pointing to being like you could have predicted it. Uh, and, and so this is like you – know, it's, it's, whenever one of these happens, we sort of throw it out there. It's like just so you know, another thing like this happened. And you know, the markets don't always care about what you know, Donald Trump is saying. Yeah, and I think the other thing I found really interesting, and and I I don't think I'm well. I'll I'll just earmark that I don't think I'm well enough informed to make a conclusive statement here. I, it may be the fact that um, this is happening because uh, there's reinvestment being made in the U.S. Um, but just without, so I'll put that qualifier on it that I'm not certain about this. But it's interesting to note uh, that sort of this is happening on the eve of, as I said earlier during the main part of the program, like the barn doors are being swung open on like it's a it's a blowout sale on corruption right now, right? And still despite that and despite Rex Tillerson and despite the EPA and despite everything else, we're not seeing what I would have expected, which is a giant, you know, record share prices for all these oil companies and you know record investments no they're still doing what they were doing anyway uh i mean i could be wrong well you know we'll we'll asterisk that but as far as as far as what this move means but i think it's very very interesting um that we're not seeing that and i'm sure the share prices have gone up i'm not saying there's been no motion on it but uh not what you would have expected for uh you know an industry who's basically just bought the whole farm uh, and they're not throwing a party, or at least they're they're they don't want to be seen throwing a party. And the market doesn't seem to be acknowledging this party. And I'm just I'm certain I'm I'm not certain what to make out of that, other than cautiously think that the companies might actually be smarter than Trump, which I don't find hard to believe. Uh, <laughs> as far as as far as it's too late to like they they know there's not a much time left uh, to like that there's not enough time left to throw that party. It's like well congratulations you know we've put up the streamers but it's ten to midnight. Um, I don't I don't know Sabina what do you think? Well. I think that all of the companies have already acknowledged and understand internally that climate change is real. It's caused by carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions. And if they and they know internally that if they want to continue doing business, you, they can't they can't listen to what Donald Trump is doing. Like they have to be smart and and they have to do that in a way that is at least somewhat sustainable for 10 years at least and if and some of these companies have been around for 50 70 80 years and you don't get to be around for that long if you're just following whatever some politician did they have a certain trajectory and they know exactly what they're doing when they're doing it whether they want to let the public know about what what they're doing that's another story but internally i think they've always known like you said in 91 92 shell had a climate change video for internally for their employees and if you look at internal strategies in these companies they know very well exactly how what's going to impact their business and when when that thing is going to impact their bottom line which for oil and gas companies climate change will 
then they're going to start to move on it regardless of whatever Donald Trump is saying or not. Like, I think f- speaking from a business point of view, I would that's just makes smart business. Yeah, sense. It, seem, it seems smart. I'm just they just surprise me by not being yeah. smart a lot. And so I, I'm, I'm confused <laughs> by their like, I agree if that's but I'm I'm I'm. Right. No, not not smart. I'm just I'm so cynical and I think justifiably cynical about their motives that I my instinct is not, oh, look, they're doing the right thing. It's what are the what game are they playing? Right. Yeah. Because more often than not, that's the reality. But but we don't know. Yeah, I think I think like when you say they're not smart, like they're very smart. <laughs> I would say, at least in my opinion of what like they're they're not good, but they're smart. <laughs> well, it, it depends. It depends on the timeline in, you're talking about. If yeah, we're talking about exactly. it in you know, five to ten years, they're being exceptionally smart. If they're if they're thinking like, you yes. know, the next century, it's, then they're being incredibly stupid. But exactly. Anyway. Exactly. So that that's 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 the truth. So in terms of short term thinking, very smart. But and and I think I think um People have to acknowledge that when it comes to business, they mostly think about their bottom line, whether they have like a huge sustainability strategy or not, whether their sustainability team is 50 or one person. Their main thing is bottom line. So if it's going to start to impact their profit, that's when we're going to start seeing changes. And if profit is going to be impacted by environmental issues, then suddenly business is going to put a lot of effort in environmental issues because maybe it's going to increase profit for them or whatever. Yeah. Well, I, I, and I think there's just, yeah, there's so many, you know, little pieces going on here. And, and, it, and what's interesting about all of these conversations is that they end up coming down to like, three different actual points you know and then and that which why i find it difficult to to often say different things on this show uh because more often than not you're like yeah it's a it's you know it's a matter of time scale and and the shorter the time scale you put someone in charge of being responsible for the more reckless their decision making is uh so you know you talk about how you know the the you know the the governments who expect to be in power forever, uh, for all of the bad reasons why a government might expect to be in power forever, uh, have a very different view on something like climate change than do uh, say governments who have say four years, and then the governments on four years have a very different reaction on climate change to uh, to the CEOs who are being responsible for every three months. You know, like a CEO is being judged by his quarterly results, uh, and so it's 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 in no way shocking that they are failing to think long term because they don't have to be there long term they will be they can be there for three four years and then they can peace out to their many yachts um and and live their own dreams uh or whatever they feel like doing next you know there's not a there's not that kind of the law the 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 lack of time scale being paid attention to all these different pieces of this um is is the is is one of the fundamental problems we're fighting Right, it's not the only, but it's definitely one of the fundamental problems we're fighting, um, and it's why you see certain organizations being way better at understanding this, and certain places being not. Because it's, it's because everyone is operating on a very different time scale uh, that we have no real ability to comprehend. Yeah, and I mean it's the whole thing about you know if if some random normal person burns their neighbor's house down, they go to jail. If an executive burns an entire neighborhood's houses down, they give them a gold watch and a hundred million dollar gift card. You know what I mean? Like it's the whole golden parachute thing. There's there's no consequences, and as you said, they're they're judged on quarterly income, and if they and if they don't make it, you know, they make a bunch of stuff, they get a bunch of bonuses for increasing it short term, and then as soon as that starts to turn around, they change jobs or they get fired. But there's it's not like they claw all those bonuses back, right? They still got the 
guy's a guy, and in most cases it is a guy. Um, but you know, the the person, um, the, there's no there's no downside for them. It's make as much money as you can, and then when you're done, you'll get to take all that money. I mean, what if? I mean, imagine it the other way around. Think about it as a bank robber, right? A bank robber robs a bunch of banks. Say he robs like ten banks, and then the eleventh time he gets busted, and we let him keep the money. We just tell him he's not allowed to rob banks anymore. I mean, that's functionally what's going on. Um, it's just that we've we've made it so that the things that the people in these higher up positions are doing, they've just bought off politicians to make the things they're not doing crimes according to the law, uh, but they're still crimes. Uh, they're just not crimes that are enforceable in the current status of the justice system. The way that it's been set up and the way it's been set up has been informed by the people committing those crimes. Um, but they are crimes, and I think we need to call them crimes. Um, you know, we can say they're crimes against nature. We can say they're crimes against uh, the human species. Um, I think crimes against humanity is appropriate, but brings a bunch of baggage with it. So I'll say that you know that that's in there. But let's not get sidetracked by the sort of other usages of that uh, phrase. Um, but but that's the thing. And so I I'd, I don't know. I one, I've been sort of reading a lot of the news recently, and I'm sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop a lot of the time. And to some degree, it has. I mean, the women's march was, as as Carl was pointing out during the 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 interview, was a monumental thing. But it in it unto itself didn't do anything. The, what it what it did. I mean, and, and I mean that in a very specific way. What it it, it didn't as in nothing changed the next day. What it did do, um, and we've uh, I've said this before, but what it did do was sort of let. A heck of a lot of people know that they're not alone. And as we see the most blatant and brazen corruption and, and racism and, and every other thing, I think we're also seeing a never before seen amount of solidarity against these forces. And sort of, you know, it's I don't it's not even really that metaphorical to say that, you know, battle lines are being drawn. And uh, I, I don't think I don't think we're going to be spending the next six months continuing to catalog the horrifying things Trump's doing. I don't even think we're going to spend the next six months cataloging or attempting to catalog the things Trudeau is doing that is not being reported on because of things Trump are doing. I think we're going to be spending a lot of the next six months talking about the backlash to this um, because thankfully, and I'm encouraged by it, despite the thing that's required to cause that, that uh, optimism uh, is that people are just about sick of this. Um, and it's about time. Uh, so let's do that. But as Stefan was saying, I mean that, you know, just you going home and putting your recycling away, uh, is a great thing. And, and thank you for doing that, but it is not going to ever, there's no amount of recycling you could ever recycle that will address the problems that are causing this, the actual fundamental problems in the first place. Uh, that will never solve this problem. Your, your personal choices will never solve the climate problem. Your personal, you know, racism, whether or not, you know, whatever, or, or biases will never, or, you know, you can't no white person can have enough black friends to end racism right like that's not that's not how this works um this it needs to be done with solidarity to actually change the system in the way that it functions and that in some cases in some of the issues we're talking about today that has to do with uh policing and uh in other cases that has to do with uh corporate law and that has to do with the ability to actually jail white collar criminals and jail bankers and jail people who run companies who who pollute and kill people by dumping, uh, you know, illegally dumping toxins into the river and, and sickening people. Uh, this has to do with jailing and punishing the people who caused the Flint water crisis uh, and making them take money out of their pockets to pay to fix it and pay remunerations to all the people that they've hurt. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, you know, personal personal choice is great, but it's also useless in actually preventing future problems. Uh, it's great at mitigating current problems. It is absolutely useless at preventing future problems. But the, I, what do you think about that, Stephen? Uh, I, I was just going to say that I think the um – Personal choice becomes valuable once you once you start talking about markets uh, and consumer choices. Uh, as much as when you have consumerism over and over again, the thing uh, that's you know that's when if, you know if enough people actually do actively change their mind and change how they buy stuff, that that is the kind of that's exerting your power in a way that's like I think personal choice does nothing or personal choice is is less impactful when. Uh, when there's no larger uh, movement behind it, and there's no lar- and and I think. M- any choice with money matters. Anytime you spend money, it matters uh, because that is that is the number one feedback loop into our system that exists, regardless of all the other problems with it. Uh, and so, uh, yes, we're never going to solve our massive uh, internal – a lot of our massive internal issues, uh, organizational issues with personal choices uh, of, of one kind. But it's personal choices with outside of the system we're trying to change. You know, if everyone spent their extra $10,000 of, of sustainable uh, – of extra income uh, to to give money to or to, you know, to, to, to – on, on, on spending money on our, like, you know, on, on something particular, that would be a massive amount of money to move that direction. However, when we all exist within the system we already exist in, we're not trying to get out of it and we're still buying into the system. Like you can recycle all you want, but if you're still buying the stuff that needs to be recycled all the time, you're you're actively still doing more buying than you are recycling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think you ha- there has to be an entire modal shift before that really has an impact. Well, and uh, before I give Sabina the last word on that, I think that I think we can be in agreement despite I think there's a lot more conversations that need to be have about some of my uh, theoretical platform proposals <laughs> that I've put forward on the show. Uh, Stefan continues to be my, uh, a voice of reason on some of on some of those. <laughs> uh, but I think we're I think we're currently all in agreement. And, and I've been running this by people I meet in my daily life as well. Uh, I've yet to, to find anyone who doesn't go. Yeah, that makes sense uh, to the idea of like one simple way of doing this. You cannot sell packaging. You cannot sell a product that has packaging that cannot be, you know, 100% recycled. Uh, easy to do. Companies can do that. Um, the the government can do that. That that's the sort of thing. That's not obviously a, a, a silver bullet or a silver buckshot or, or any of those things. But it's it's one of the pieces of shrapnel in the buckshot. If we can sort of continue to use that metaphor, uh, and we need a lot more stuff like that. But like. There isn't a rational argument against that uh, because it doesn't even affect the company's profitability. If everybody has to, you know, if we pass a law saying everyone must own pink cars, the value of pink people will go, oh, but pink cars have low value. Yes, but every if every car is pink, then there's no, you know, value loss to that. And I think that's what we're talking about. Companies will object if you say, well, okay, well, only food has to be in this packaging. And they'll say, well, that's not fair because other companies don't. But if we just say across the board, everybody does this. Uh, and here's the benefit we're going to have to society. And by the way, this creates an amazing input for us to then create this giant industrial movement around actually using this input we've created, this output that we've now just made an input by requiring all packaging to be recyclable. We now have this, we've created this massive, here you go, uh, people who are really interested in this, business opportunity uh, to to make companies around creating recycled materials, reusing it for reusing those recycled materials to do things. All this activity happens when you do that. Um, Let's just do that. Sabina, last word. Yeah, I just wanted to say, I mean, that's kind of one of the concepts of the circular economy is just kind of um, doing things like that in order to get new business opportunities out of out of waste or resources that we didn't think that were resources before. But what's really interesting to me and moving away from this whole thing of personal choice is that we have these huge 
institutions like academia that keeps teaching people over and over again, like business methods of the 1970s or public policy of whatever the past when like we have all of these students coming out of university super siloed and thinking that they can only do the thing that they're doing and the universities are teaching them exactly the way that they've been teaching them for the past, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So I think what's really important is starting really at the root of the problem with the education system and starting to teach people that, you know, the way that we've been doing things in the past is not exactly, tr is not really working for us. And where's the best place to do that is in universities where everybody's kind of an activist already and then and then they sell out but you know it's it's right here and trying to teach people that you know business doesn't have to be bottom line you know or public policy doesn't have to be only four years and then you get out or whatever it is that whatever it is that you're studying it can be taught in in those areas or for example mba students don't have to be taught you know the things that they're being taught they can be you know talking a lot more about sustainability and the way that thinking about because these people are smart they can come up with different reasons like just give them a reason to do it but anyways yeah all right thank you spinas thank you stefan and thank you listener for listening thank this has been the green majority bonus show hope you enjoy it and uh we'll see you next week take care